John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. For many people, sleep is in short supply. It's hard to come by. Doctors, scientists, they'll tell you it's not really the length of sleep that you need. It's depth that you're after. What you really need is REM, rapid eye movement sleep. And if you can't get that, you're in deep trouble. Aromatherapy will not help very much. Meditation, well, that's limited in value. What you really need, ask any doctor, ask a sleep expert, ask a scientist to strengthen you, to renew you, is REM sleep. But it's in very short supply. Now, the Bible teaches us that it's not just REM sleep that you're after. It's not just your body that needs to be rejuvenated and renewed. What you really need of even greater worth and value and treasure than physical sleep and physical rest is REM sleep for your soul. That's what we're all really thirsty for and hungry for. Just, just ask the woman at the well who we met in John chapter 4. She's thirsty for REM sleep of her soul. And the Bible says there is deep rest that is possible. It's not just unattainable. It's not just pie in the sky. It's not just a myth. There is a deep rest of the soul that's possible and can be found only in Jesus. Now, it may not appear that this passage is about that, but it is. And I want to show you my workings out from John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. The word sign, by the way, that we're getting familiar with from John 2, from John 4, does not appear in these sentences. But by now, John is saying, I've given you enough clues. You need to be looking out for signs, even if the word is not mentioned. And so we have here the third sign that we see in John's gospel. We're in John 5, verses 1 to 9, we see a sign. We see a man with a great need, and Jesus with great compassion. 
It's the healing of the lame man at Bethesda. And I want us to look at the man. But only after we've looked at the pool, and having looked at the pool and having looked at the man, I want us to look at true soul rest, deep rest, true rest. Okay, pool, man, rest. That's where we're going, number one, the pool. It's interesting, isn't it, as Caroline read it so clearly, that we are filled with information and details about the pool at Bethesda, verse 2. It's in Jerusalem, verse 2. It's near the Sheep Gate. That means we're up here in the northern part of the city of Jerusalem. It's a a pool called Bethesda. And then in verse 2, we've got some architectural details just for fun. It's a covered by five colonnades or porches so that the pool could be used in the heat of the day. That's what it's there for. It's not just for show. It's there practically also to look beautiful. The pool at Bethesda had uh, five colonnades, five porches. Verse 4 to 5, there's a footnote there that you may have picked up in your Bible. It's a pool that was supposed to have healing properties so that the lame gathered there, the the blind gathered there, verse 3, the paralyzed gathered there. Why? Because verse 4 footnote, it was believed that an angel would descend, would disturb the waters and they would become healing in their properties and so that if you could get there in time, you would be healed of your ailment, healed of your paralysis. So we're given all this detail about the pool. So it's very significant. Now I've done a little bit of digging, pardon the pun this week. And uh, there's a famous book written by F.F. Bruce, who looked into the New Testament documents and asked the question that we all need to ask. Are they reliable? He outlines in one of the chapters this. He says this chapter, John chapter 5, is used in the New Testament by people in the 18th and 19th century when modern scholarship was getting up and scientific scholarship was getting up to speed. And they said, here is proof, John chapter 5, that the New Testament is unreliable and that it cannot be trusted. This is their workings out. They said there is no historical record for the pool at Bethesda. It's just made up. Not only is there no record of the pool, there's no, uh, there's no design in ancient history of a five-sided swimming pool. And so it couldn't have happened. Five colonnades, it just would never have happened. And then they found the pool. They dug it up. They discovered it was under the church in Jerusalem. And it had been built upon after many, many years and many generations. When they excavated the pool, they found it was in two parts. With a big rock in the middle. It was was, was grander than even describes here. It did have five colonnades. It wasn't pentagonal, maths lesson. It wasn't five-sided in its properties, in its design, but it did have five colonnades. And it's a deep irony, says F.F. Bruce, that the evidence, one of the many evidences that the New Testament cannot be trusted, turns out ironically to be one of the proofs that it can be. Now, what difference does that make, whether John 5 is historically reliable or not? It makes a big difference. Here's the difference it makes. If Christianity is just like any other religion in the world, then God will only save worthy people. God will only save worthy people. Therefore, you must live a certain kind of life. You must exhibit certain types of behavior. You must display virtue and character if God only saves worthy people. And if that's true, and if John 5 can't be trusted if it's not historically reliable and rooted, it wouldn't make very much difference at all whether it actually happened, this healing event. 
But the trouble is that it is very, very important that the New Testament is reliable because it doesn't say that God saves the worthy. It doesn't give us a blueprint for living or just an example to follow. It reveals a saviour who God sent into human history. And if John 5 can't be trusted, then the New Testament can't be trusted. Christianity is not like the religions of the world. God does not save worthy people. Jesus said, I came to seek those who were sick. I came to seek those who are lost. I came to seek those who are needy and lowly and last, not those who are worthy and first. I've come to rescue those who are rebels, those who are uh, understanding in part of their sin. Christianity, Christianity is not about saving worthy people. It's about the wondrous grace of God that you see in Jesus Christ. We're not saved because of our worthiness. We're not saved because of our enoughness. We're saved because of the worth and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He fulfilled all righteousness and then he died a once and for all death and was raised to life again by his father on the third day to show that God the Father was satisfied with the substitutionary death. Atonement is the big word of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he did it all in your place. So if you have arrived this morning and you don't feel very worthy, you're in the right place. Because God does not save worthy people. He saves worthless people. He saves sin-sick people. He saves struggling people. He saves rebels and wretches. Because Christianity is all of grace, it's all of God, and it's a gift. And that's why it's amazing grace. So does it matter that John 5 is disproved? Because there's no evidence for it. And then the pool is found. And then five colonnades are found. And then the pool is even more wonderful than it was first described in John's Gospel. Yes, it matters. Because it's not just a blueprint for life. It points to a saviour who came to seek and to save the lost. It's not about your enoughness. It's not about the crushing burden of living a worthy life. So you measure up to God's standards, which no one ever has outside of his son, Jesus Christ. You're saved by grace. And it did happen at the pool in John chapter 5. That's just the pool, by the way. Let's look at the man. The pool, number one. The man, number two. Here's this man, verse 5. He's a man who had been there as an invalid for 38 years. It's important to know what we know and what we don't. We know that he's an invalid for 38 years. He's had a disability for 38 years. We are not told when he became an invalid. The man might be in his 60s and he was a, became a, an invalid in his 20s, for example. We don't know if he was born with a disability or if it happened in later life, but he's there hoping for the waters to be stirred. That's where his hope rests, that uh, an angel will descend, will stir the waters as in traditional belief, and if he can get there first, and how heartbreaking it is to read the sentence, but others kept jumping the queue. If he could get there first, then it's his hope and belief that he would be healed. But notice Jesus, as he so often does, woman at the well, uh, the healing of the official son last week. He deals with people according to their need and he deals with people in stages. Look at the tenderness of Jesus. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? That's the first posture of Jesus as, as he comes to the man in need. Notice what does not happen. The man does not ask Jesus for something. 
The man does not know who Jesus is, like we saw last week, the alternate example of the, the religious official who knew who Jesus was. This man is different. He doesn't ask Jesus for something. Jesus asks him for something. He doesn't know who Jesus is. Jesus knows every atom that is forming his being, every hair on his head. He doesn't come to Jesus, but Jesus comes to him. It's all there in verse 6. And this is a profound principle that we find throughout the Bible. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you ever find God, it's because God first found you. He's the one who makes the running. He's the one who shows the initiative. It's not about you, it's all about him. We're saved by his grace. Now, many of us are allergic to different things. If you're a teenager, it's hard work. If, it's a, 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 if you're not a cat lover, it could be cats that bring a tear to your eye. It could be pollen. It could be dust. It's becoming spring. I trust it's going to be spring, although it's freezing in our house, and it's going to be freezing this week. But spring is just around the corner, and that means if you're a pollen hater like me, I need to start to take my antihistamine and so on. You can be allergic to a whole host of things. The Bible says we're also allergic to God's grace. Deep down in our heart, there's something that we recoil against, and it's God's grace. In Genesis 3, we're taught about the first temptation for our, to our first parents, and there's nothing new under the sun. And people who study and read the Bible, who are called theologians, they say this is the old lie. It's the lie from the serpent, who's the devil, who spoke to Adam and Eve and said this, did God really say that? And he implied that God doesn't care, and he implied that God is not good. And we believe that lie deeply in our hearts to this day. And this is how it goes today. If I come near to God, he will destroy my happiness. So I'm not going to go there. God is a happiness and a contentment killer and destroyer. I'm allergic to him, so I won't go near to him because then I'll have to start to obey his claims and to give countenance to his opinion. He's a happiness killer. That's not a new temptation. It's as old as the first chapter in the Bible and the lie that came to our first parents. And we believe that lie. So we're allergic to God's grace. If you come near to him, you'll never be happy again. And this fear is so strong in our hearts that rather than following the God of the Bible, rather than enjoying his love and affection and kindness and compassion, we'd rather make a God in our own image that we can worship and control, or we want to run a hundred miles the other way, like Jonah did to Joppa. We're fearful. And the Bible says we're not just fearful, we're spiritually blind. We cannot see who God is. We cannot hear his word. We don't want to give countenance to his kindness unless God, by his grace, makes all the running and takes the initiative. We will remain fearful and blind. There's some verses from the Bible that are here to encourage us. This is God's character. In spite of our blindness and deafness, in spite of our hardness of heart, Praise God for his character, Isaiah 65. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are speaking, I will hear. God is there in compassion before we even utter a word on our lips. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. It's not of us, it's of God's grace. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. God is the forerunner. God is the initiator. God is the motivator. It's all of grace. 
Now, that's good news for the man because the man does not know who Jesus is. He doesn't ask him anything. Jesus comes to him and meets him in his need. Look at the second stage, verse 6 and into verse 7. Do you want to get well? And you may be thinking, what sort of a question is that? He's been an invalid for 38 years, verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Well, I'm trying to get in. Someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, this is quite subtle, this point, I think. The man is not looking to Jesus and saying, you are my salvation, like the man last week. I've heard from other people. I've heard from other people that you have the power and authority. You've done miraculous deeds in Galilee. And I'm going to come and I'm going to lay myself at your feet. I'm going to beg that you heal my son. This man is not like that at all. He's saying, Jesus, would you help me get into the water? There's my hope. There's my hope. Please help me. And Jesus says, I want to help you, but not according to your apparent need, but to the need that I can see in your heart. We're all like that at the beginning. When we are looking at Jesus, we think, Jesus, would you come and help me in my need? Jesus, would you help me? My career is struggling. Will you help me to get it back on track? Would you help me get my act together? Will you help me feel better about myself? And it's very easy to use Jesus as a means to an end. He is like Aladdin's lamp. Will you help me find something to make me feel significant and secure? I'm lonely. Will you help me find a significant other? And instead of seeing Jesus as the source of salvation that's found in him and in him alone, we see him as a means to an end. In other words, we tend to use him as a means to an end rather than saying, in you are my significance and you are my, is my source of life. If I have you, I have everything. Outside of you, I have nothing. I want to get down to the water. I want to get down to the water because there's my hope. Jesus, would you help me? People just keep jumping the queue and getting ahead of me. But thirdly, notice in spite of what, all of this, what does the man say? What does Jesus say to him? Jesus does not say, I'm not taking you down to the water. Because you've not reached out and uh, placed your faith and belief in me, I'm not going to help you. I'm off. I'm going to go and help someone else who does have faith. Look at what Jesus says. He doesn't say that. Jesus, in spite of the man's unbelief, in spite of the man not knowing who Jesus is, what does Jesus say? Get up. I am the water. Verse 8, get up, pick up your mats and walk. The man didn't come looking for Jesus. The man didn't come longing for Jesus. But Jesus, out of his sheer benevolence and kindness and grace, says, pick up your mat and walk at once, immediately. It's not gradual. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And immediately, like a hinge, the passage turns and becomes very controversial if you're a Jewish person. Immediately, the kindness of Jesus, the redemptive act of Jesus, puts the man in trouble with the Jews. The word mat, the mat, the mat, just comes up again and again, saying it's that they're not concerned that the man's been healed. Did you notice that? They're more concerned that someone's broken the rules, and we want to know who it is. There are at least 39 things that you could not do on the Sabbath, Verse 10, 
The law forbids that you carry your mat. If you could wear the mat, just to humor you, if you could wear the mat, like a kind of a shoulder strap or something like that, then that wasn't work. But if it was something you carried, well, if it's something you picked up, then that was work and you'd broken the Sabbath. You could journey to someone for a, a meal, but if that was a thousand and one yards away from your home, you're breaking the Sabbath. You couldn't do medical work on the Sabbath. And Jesus, verse 13, having healed the man, slips away. And verse 14, when he returns, see, you are well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, at this point, verse 14 is a strange sentence. Thinking, what does that mean? And if you did 10 Google searches and if you had 10 books uh, that help you understand the Bible, you get 10 different answers of what this means. What is Jesus saying in verse 14? The man is healed. The man has received newness of life. And now there's a strange sentence, verse 14. Jesus slips away. Jesus returns and says this, see you well again, stop sinning. Or something worse may happen to you. And it sounds kind of ominous what Jesus is saying. And I'm going to put my hand up and say, I'm not totally sure what this means. But here's my best guess. The reason you are injured, says Jesus, was because you were doing something in your life and that caused you to become an invalid. So don't do something bad. Don't do something foolish again so you may become disabled again. It could mean that. Or Jesus may be saying, if you don't come to faith now that I've restored your mobility by the power of God, maybe God will have to give you something else to wake you up spiritually. Could mean that. I'll leave you to decide. But what is clear is this. The whole point of the action of Jesus, healing somebody who wasn't asking for it from Jesus, pursuing someone who didn't cry out for mercy, is this. I do not just want to heal your body, says Jesus. I want you to believe. I want you to be completely healed spiritually as well as healed physically. I want your heart. I want your sins to be forgiven. And I and I alone can do that. So stop sinning or something worse may happen to you, verse 14. And here's what's interesting. The minute he figures out who Jesus is, sentence 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now that is throwing Jesus under the bus. It was him that made me do it. I'm scot-free. I'm innocent. He told me to pick up my mat. This man is so afraid of the religious leaders who had a lot of power in that time and in that day. There's the man who told me to do it. Please don't be angry with me. Please don't give me any consequences for breaking the Sabbath. Now notice we're not told in a plot twist. We're not told that the man believes in Jesus at this point. That's what we're all waiting for. That's what we're used to. We're not told that the man has a appreciation of what Jesus has done for him. We're not told, well, we're not told very much, are we, by John? We're supposed to have the ending that we all expect, where the man gets healed, and then the man runs out with joy and says, oh, master, I believe. Come and see the man who healed me, like the woman in chapter four. But he doesn't. And again, you've got a profound lesson from the Bible. If the Bible's message was, God saves worthy people, then the Bible would be full of people that always have the right answers, that never make mistakes, men that are faithful, women that are, do the right thing, men and women who are courageous, men and women who always put God first. 
But what you actually have in the Bible is a series of accounts from a history of men and women who do not seek God's grace. Men and women who don't always respond to God's kindness as they should. Men and women who don't appreciate God's grace when they get it. That's the story of the Bible, because God does not save worthy people. But out of his sheer benevolence and kindness, out of the abundance of his character, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love by his grace, God gives and God chooses and God rescues. That's the message of the Bible. It's not a series of stories that they all lived happily ever after. This man shows no sign of believing in Jesus. He throws him under the bus and goes about his life. It's not there to inspire us how to live the Bible. It's not there to give us an example how, uh, who to follow. But it is showing us our great need of God's mercy that without it would be blind, deaf and dumb and spiritually nowhere. That's the Paul, that's the man. And thirdly, finally, rest. The rest, the true rest that Jesus offers. Now, these sentences at the end, sentence 16 to 18, are more controversial than even you or I appreciate because we're not Jewish, so we don't hear it with Jewish ears. You're healing and doing things on the Sabbath that you should never be doing. Verse 17, Jesus says, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And straight away the rabbis, verse 18, realize What Jesus is claiming that will just bypass us because we're not Jewish. The only one that could work on the Sabbath would be God. And so Jesus is saying, by my actions of benevolence and power, I am showing you that I am God. I'm showing you a glimpse into my purposes and in my power. You see, the Sabbath is about restoration. It's not about rules. In chapter 1 of John's Gospel, Jesus is revealed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And every lamb, every woolly quadruped that was killed in the Old Testament pointed forward to the true Lamb of God. They never took away sin, but they were symbolic of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who alone can take away sin. In chapter 5, now Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one to whom every Sabbath rest points to. It's not just one day off a week. Think of Genesis chapter 2 when God spoke the world into being. And then it says he rested. God wasn't tired. God didn't need a cat nap. It meant he was satisfied. It meant he enjoyed everything that he spoke into being. And he was at peace. And so the blueprint of the Bible is that you need one day off a week at least, whether you're a shift worker, whether that's a Saturday or a Sunday, however it comes out in your calendar to some degree, is up to your employment status and stage of life. It's always been more than one day off a week. It's pointed to something. So in the Old Testament, you've got the Sabbath rest. God's saying, I will deliver you from Egypt. It's not physical restoration. It's not just deep sleep. It's soul sleep. It's spiritual REM and restoration. I'm going to take you to the promised land. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to deliver you, and you're going to worship me, and you're going to enjoy me. But if you disobey me, says God, who's not to be trifled with. You will never enter my rest, says God in the Old Testament. If you disobey me, you'll never enter my rest. So it's not just physical. It's talking about something different. All of us work, whether in paid employment or not, beneath the work that we enjoyed with a career, perhaps if that's behind us, or a work that we're in right now. Beneath the work that we do, 
for pounds, shillings and pence is actually a deeper work that we think the work can reach. If you're from a traditional culture, then you can work, 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 work. But actually you're working to pay the bills, yes, but underneath the, the work, you're working to please your parents. You're working to please your family. You're working to make them proud. If you're from a more Western culture, then you work, 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 work. You work yourself into the ground, but to gain self-esteem. I'm going to show you how smart I am. I'm going to show you how much money I can make. I can show you how accomplished I am. Two different motivations. There's a work that we're trying to achieve underneath the paid employment that we do, eight till six, five days a week or so on. There's a work under the work. There's a rest that we long for. We use uh, work to to pay the bills, but actually work is very linked to our self-esteem. It's very linked to trying to get approval. It's very linked to make enough of ourselves, to justify ourselves, to save ourselves. But if it's linked to the work underneath the work, then it will always be crushing. What we really need is sleep, spiritual sleep. We need a deep rest. And Jesus says that you can get it only in him. The writer in the book of Hebrews puts it this way. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their own rest or work rather, just as God did from his. Notice that? They rest from their own work. We're all working underneath the work. Our, Our work is there to meet a heart need, not just to pay the bills, especially as they're increasing. But there's a rest that's possible in Jesus. That means that we can gain deep sleep and rest for our souls. We need to finish up. How is this possible? It's possible in three profound words. On the cross, at the first Easter, Jesus said this, it is finished. How do you rest, not just from your paid employment, but from what you're trying to gain from your paid employment? There is a source of rest that is only found in Jesus and what he has achieved on the cross and in his life. God the Father approves of his work by the resurrection and the ascension of his Son because he lived a perfect life. Everything that he achieved, his perfect enoughness, his righteousness, we can receive by faith in his Son, in Jesus. You are righteous in his sight. You're accepted by the Father because of the work of the Son. And when you realize he died in your place, when you realize how satisfied the Father is in the work of Jesus and so that the Father sees you in his Son, in him, then you can rest. You can work hard. You can work to be proud, but you're no longer crushed if you don't achieve it. You can work to pay the bills, but it's no longer linked to your identity. It's not your salvation anymore. It's not your water anymore. You realize that Jesus is enough for you. And so he gives you your identity, your worth, your self-esteem. He is your salvation. When was the last time you had a good night's sleep? Because in Christ and in Christ alone, there is a source of true rest. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their own work, just as God did from this. Where's the rest? It is finished. Let's pray.